Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Greg, for the words that are far beyond what I sense God does through me, but I praise God that He works in our lives through so many different kinds of people. But I want to say to you, especially collegians, you are the leaders of today, not tomorrow. You're the leaders now. You're the ones that are going to make a difference in the churches that you're a part of right now. And I believe with all my heart, men and women, as I stand before you, that your college experience, especially your master's college experience, will do more in shaping your values, in focusing your direction, than probably any other experience. Now, I know certain things take place in early developmental periods. I know there's a certain shaping that happens within your home. But there's something about this age, this unique parenthesis within your life, of which your values are marked like no other time. Because if my basic educational understanding is accurate, so often up through high school years, a lot of what takes place is a modeling. There's a sense of what that youth pastor or that parent or that teacher, a lot of modeling in a sense to be like them. Some that weren't real good or you weren't real comfortable with. I mean, you learned even the bad parts of what not to be like. But all of a sudden in your college era, there's a time where you begin to say, what do I believe as an individual? It isn't enough to say, what does my pastor believe about the Holy Spirit? It isn't adequate to say, what do my parents believe about Jesus? It isn't enough to say, what does my high school friend believe about the Word of God? Suddenly, it's what do you believe? And it's something about this era of your college involvement, of this era of your life, where there's a shaping of your values for a lifetime. And so, as I was asked to speak this morning, one of the themes I'd like us to focus on is to begin some thoughts about the attributes of God. Greg mentioned I had the privilege of teaching at Biola for 10 years, from 73 to 83. And one of the segments of our theology classes and the makeup was a class called God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And I used to tell my students, semester after semester, that that's the most important class they'll ever take in their life. Not because I was teaching it, but because I believe in the deepest passions of my heart that what we believe about God shapes our entire value system. Walter Hendrickson, written a little paperback book called Disciples Are Made, Not Born, Navigator and Background, great little book. And in that book, Walter Hendrickson says this, listen, every problem we have is related to our concept of God. Now think about that for a moment. Every problem you have, whether it's a family issue, a dating issue, a financial concern, interpersonal struggles, vocational areas academic pressure, every problem you have relates to your concept of God. Now, Hendrickson goes on and says it this way. If you have a small God, then you've got big problems. But if you've got a big God, then your problems are much smaller. Because, you see, if your God is small, every problem becomes an obstacle. But if your God is big then every problem becomes an opportunity to see him work. There are two books that I read over and over again, usually one of them every year, so every two years I go through them, and they give me sort of a, a kick in the pants to get back and saying what has God said to be true of himself, and one is by A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. Because A.W. Tozer, at the very beginning of that book, says, what comes into your mind when you think about God? I wish we had the time this morning. I'd love to give you all an eight and a half by 11 blank sheet of paper and have you begin to jot down what is it that you love, that you adore, that you worship, that you appreciate about God. Because most people, I, I, I love Jesus. Yeah, I love God. But what do you love about him? Well, I, I love him. But what do you love about him? Well, you know, I, just, I love him. He saved me. Well, what else? See, to love somebody involves a relationship. Involves a sense to where you know that person. You begin to develop an understanding about that individual. And Tozer, within that book, says, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Because he says the answer to that question will determine each of our spiritual futures. He says you ask the country, your nation. 
You ask your leading church people what comes into their mind as a denomination when they think about God as a particular church. And he says you will determine with certainty the spiritual futures of those particular leadership areas. The second book I appreciate so much is by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. And I read those books over and over again because they keep forcing me back to Scripture, but they're such very clear supportive areas to what the Scripture says, I think they keep us focused. Now, friends, if I was to ask you what comes into your mind when you think about God, what would be your response? Several years ago, I gathered some commercials from an elementary school teacher. She had asked her kids, and I think they're at about the fourth grade, to take current commercials and to attribute them to God. Now, friends, they suffer, okay, from the hard sell techniques of the advertisement world, but they're as true as the heart and the, and the passions of the kid. One little fourth grader wrote, God is better than American Express. Remember why? I mean, you never leave home without Him. It was great. Another little gal wrote, God is better than Band-Aids, because He's really stuck on you. I like that. One wrote, God is better than Scotch tape. You can't see Him, but you know He's there. The teacher wrote, God is better than VO5 hairspray. He holds in all kinds of weather. I like that. And then the favorite that you've heard so often, but I think is so real, God is much better than Hallmark cards because He really did care enough to send the very best. You see, I want us to be a people. I want us to be brothers and sisters in Christ, men and women, who as we hear certain advertisements, we realize, you know what, that advertisement can't fulfill all it claims. But there's a sense to where God is so integrated within your life that whatever you hear, you see, you think through, you filter, you understand, we see God's power, God's hand, God's involvement within our lives. And so let me ask you the question once again. What do you think about? What comes into your mind when you think about God? Eugene Peterson in his book, Traveling Light, writes this. Listen. One of the wickedest things one person can do to others is to lie to them about God. To represent God as other or less than He is. It is wicked to tell a person that God is an angry tyrant storming through the heavens out to get every trespasser and throw him in the lake of fire. It's wicked to tell a person that God is a senile grandfather dozing in a celestial rocking chair with only the shortest of attention spans. It is wicketer to tell a person that God is compulsively efficient and an utterly humorless manager of a tightly run cosmos, obsessed with getting the highest productivity possible out of history, with no concern for persons apart from their usefulness. If we believe that God is an angry tyrant, we're going to defensively avoid Him if we can. If we believe that God is a senile grandfather, we're going to live carelessly and trivially with no sense of transcendent purpose. If we believe that God is an efficiency expert, we're going to live angry at being reduced to a function and never appreciated as a person. It's wicked to tell a person a lie about God because if we come to believe the wrong things about God, we will think the wrong things about ourselves and we'll live meanly or badly. Telling a person a lie about God distorts reality, perverts life, and damages all the processes of living. A wrong idea of reality about God leads to a, long, a wrong response to life. If we think that God is abstract and impersonal, we'll live aimlessly. And how many people live that way? Feeling scared, deprived, ignored, and insignificant. May I ask you once again, what comes into your mind when you think about God. This morning, would you go with me to the Old Testament book of Genesis and turn with me to chapter 37. 
because I'd like to focus on one dimension of what God has revealed to be true about Himself. And we usually call that His sovereignty. And I want us to see God's design, God's plan, God's individual purpose for you and for me by way of His sovereignty by looking at the life of Joseph for just a moment. Because beginning in chapter 37, we see some very valuable insight about God's sovereignty in our family situation. God's sovereignty in that, that home environment in which He placed us. And then if we have the time, we'll look on a little bit into some areas where God's sovereignty touches our, our life circumstances. Would you bow with me, please? Let's ask God to change our lives. Father, we are not here just because we have to be or just because it's ritual or tradition. But we're here because we believe that you want to set a direction for our lives. You want to help us understand purpose and design. You want us to draw upon you for power and confidence. So, Father, I ask that by the power of your Spirit, because He's the real teacher here today, that you'd help me to communicate clearly, to take my limited words and my limited experiences, and by the teaching of your Spirit, touch each of our lives by way of conviction, encouragement, nurture, maybe a release today, maybe a new hope and direction. But help us to be different people because of these brief moments together. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Look with you now at Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. Now Jacob, that's Joseph's father, lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Let's pause there for a moment. We come upon a scene where we've got Joseph, 17 years of age. Doesn't tell us much about those first 17 years. So hold your place here, would you please, and go back to chapter 30 for a moment. Because I'd like you to gain a, a brief glimpse into those early 17 years. Just a little sketch that we have about the family situation. What God allowed him to be born in, placed in, nurtured in as a family unit. Look at chapter 30 with me of Genesis. Let's begin in verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. That's Joseph's mom. Okay, take a look. And God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, look at her words, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. I don't know if you mind writing in your Bible or whatever, but I have in verses 22... 23 and 24, I have God circled four times. And you know, it's because we believe so strongly in the inerrancy of Scripture, of God directing those that wrote Scripture, they didn't just write to fill up a page like sometimes you do on that essay exam, you know? You kind of said all you wanted in the first three sentences, but you knew you had to do a little more to at least I think you knew more about that question. We often fill up space for whatever reason. We often repeat things just out of a certain habit or certain areas. But friends, whenever God repeats issues within the Word of God, it isn't just to fill space. It isn't just somehow of a, of a repetition or a stuttering. It's to emphasize areas of importance. And I believe that we have some seeds here of understanding that within that home, though it was far from perfect, there was a sense from Joseph's mom that God had given that child to her. See, that begins to say volumes to me, guys and gals, about the sanctity of life. That says to me very important dynamics about the timing of birth. See, there's some of you who struggle wishing you'd been born ten years earlier or a few years later or a little different home setting. 
areas of a different maybe parents or different circumstances. But you see, a part of God's sovereignty, a part of what we need to understand by way of God's design is He places within particular homes for a reason. It's no accident. And I see here God opened her womb. In other spots, God closed someone's womb. And I see there where God allowed this situation to take place. And so I think that Joseph grew up in a home where the mom realized that children are a gift from the Lord. And so one is blessed in that sense by God as the creator of life itself. Can I say to you this morning, men and women, faculty, administrators, students, it's no accident that you're here today. It's no accident within the family that you've been placed. Now go with me to chapter 31. Look a little bit about his dad, his mom, Rachel, in chapter 30. Look at chapter 31. Now Jacob, that's Joseph's dad, heard the words of Laban's son. And Laban was Jacob or Joseph's father's father-in-law. You remember the story and Leah and Rachel and all that took place. But look on. Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's. And from what belonged to our father, he's made all this wealth. And Jacob saw the attitude of Laban. And behold, it wasn't friendly toward him as formerly. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and your relatives. I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field and said to them, now look at verse 5, I see your father's attitude. It's not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my fathers has been with me. And you know I've served your father with all my strength. Now look at verse 7. And yet your father has cheated me. He's changed my wages ten times. However, look at the next phrase. God did not allow him to hurt me. Would you pause for a moment? Friends, if I understand Romans 8.28, if I can use that as sort of a, a catch verse for a moment, it never says all things are good. It says all things, what? Work together for good. And I don't want to be simplistic, but if I take that concept from Romans 8.28, I see that fit right in here in a life circumstance where he was honest about what had been going on. I'd been cheated. Changed my wages. Man, it wasn't fair. But God has been with me. But God has not allowed them to hurt me. Some of you have had some struggles even in your classes. What you thought was going to be exam date and then the teacher moved the date. That isn't fair. You know, I mean, you had that and I planned this sort of winter retreat or involved. That isn't really fair. Certain things happen all of our lives. Some of you have some very difficult situations within your home. Some of you have some very bitter experiences from a neighborhood situation. Some of you went to work in a certain area and thought this was going to take place and they, they changed the particular job description. Fake some of the wages on you, whatever was done. Men and women, life is not fair. It's one of the things I'm trying to help my kids learn. We have a daughter who's 15, a son who's 10. Men and women, life is tough. But you see, God wants to give us strength. God wants to give us purpose. God wants us to see design. And so often within some of the Christian media, as you know, it's sort of, well, you do these six things, it'll all go away. You do these five things, it'll all be well. You do this and you'll be healed. Go through all certain little quick items. I don't see that within Scripture. I don't see that within life. But I appreciate the candor where a dad could say, you know what, I've been cheated. My wages changed. That isn't unfair. But we're going to trust that all things work together for good. We're going to trust that God is going to use this difficult situation for my best. Some of you broken up from a dating relationship. And the emotions are really tough. He or she maybe cheated on you. All of a sudden, I started going with somebody before they'd finalized things with you. And it's tough. It hurts. The emotions run deep. But I want you to gain a trust today that even though that person may have cheated on you, even though that person didn't follow through correctly, it was a very inappropriate situation. So it was with Jacob. Laban didn't treat him right. But Jacob had the confidence God is in control. There's a purpose. There's a reason. There's a design. You see, as I begin to ask that question earlier on, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Is there that sense that God will not, will not allow these things to hurt you? Even though there may be some pain, but that sense of your potential. Even though there may be certain loss, there's a higher purpose, there's a higher design. 
See, when God has a much higher design than to keep us happy, than to keep us healthy, than to keep us whole in the sense of even our body parts. God has a much higher design than that. But our culture says, oh man, it's how you look. It's what you drive. It's the label on your pants. It's the address. It's the keys you carry. That's what makes it. And we have a society that is disintegrating in areas of relationships. I mean, we, we live in the drive-by shooting capital of the world, Southern California. We live in the drug capital of the nation. Not the world, but the nation. We live in situations where homes are just deteriorating. You see, God has much higher values in our culture. You see, you've got a very critical choice, allegiance, of either being driven by the culture, driven by society, we're driven by God's values. I think God wants us to be sensitive to our culture. He wants us to be aware of the market, but not driven by the market, driven by the culture. We're to be driven by God's values. And so I see in the initial sense, by way of that home life, a mom and a dad, not perfect, made a lot of mistakes, gang, but a mom and a dad who at least had a sense of a, of a confidence. Now, can I apply that to you for a second? Part of what I see here is to where in any relationship you're placed in, whether you're living in some dorms, housing, apartments, with your folks, whatever it may be, those people that God places within that home unit, our faith affects each other. Our responses touch each other. And I wonder as you are with that particular group in that dorm, with those ones in that particular project, are you aware of how your responses, your faith, what you think about God, how that impacts the people around you? Because I think Joseph's mom and Joseph's dad impacted him by way of their responses to situations. Go back with me to chapter 37 for a moment. Verse 2. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives. My friends, are you aware of the fact that Joseph's father, Jacob, had in a sense four wives? One to marry Rachel, you remember? Mary, ended up marrying Leah and then married Rachel. And it says here he had two other handmaidens, Zilpha and Bilhah. Talk about a blended family. I mean, if I put that together correctly, as you look at what's there, it seems that he only had one full brother, ten half-brothers, and one half-sister. Can you imagine what they did on holidays? <laughs> Can you imagine who was serving what and what home you went to and who was making the dinner or what was taking place? A very, very difficult situation. But friends, I don't think it was any accident that God allowed that circumstance to take place. I want you to look beyond just an area of what you may have felt was a dysfunctional home or a very healthy home. Some of you don't know who are your natural parents. Some of you have gone through a major divorce situation within the home and the blended family has been a very difficult experience for you. And Joseph experienced some of those pieces. Now look on with me about his brother's responses. Verse 3, his dad, also called Israel, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his own age and made him a varied colored tunic. We've spent a good deal of time on that, but that's not my real focus today. Look on in verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Some of you come from that kind of background. There's some real animosity within a home. There's a real distance between half-brothers or even full-brothers or half-sisters or full-sisters. Some very difficult experiences. I'd like to ask you today to be honest before God because Hebrews tells us, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and begins to defile or pollute relationships around you. I'm not here to defend their father's seemingly 
inappropriate love and lavish gestures. But maybe something like that's happened in your home. You knew the other sister was the favorite. You know, mom's, you know, great fellow. He did stuff for her and not for me. You know, mom always liked you best. And it may be true. I see that here. But I want us to be a people who realize, men and women, can we rise beyond that? Because if I understand what God teaches us in His Word, what God reveals to be true about Himself, you know what? Heredity or environment will not limit your potential for life. Joseph grew up in this kind of a messed up family. And yet, you know what? Just a few decades later, he is prime minister of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. And I want you to grapple with that for a moment. Because if some of you think, oh, you know, if I just had a different dad, you know, if he wasn't a pastor, you know, if he wasn't a teacher at Master's College and always hanging around, it'd be so much easier for me, you know? If I just had a different mom, or if, just a, if I was just a different situation, my dad wasn't a shrink, you know? If my mom wasn't a psychologist, it'd be so much easier for me. And I realize that our home environment, I'm very aware that our heredity has a, an effect on us. But minimum, I don't want that to limit us for our usefulness. God has a plan for your life that is not limited by the crises, the difficulties, the unfairness, the injustices, the abuse that may have gone on. But if you limit saying, boy, because that happens, I can't really be the person God wants me to be because that took place, all of a sudden my life is ruined. If that's going to be your response, then you're not thinking accurately about God. And that wrong understanding about God's potential will directly affect your own being. Men and women, you are leaders of today. Realize that heredity, environment, does not limit your usefulness, your potential for life. Now, look on in verse 5. Look at some life situations for a moment. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers... Look at the response. They hated him even more. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, wait, wait, please listen to my dream. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. My sheep rose up. Your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheep. His brothers said, are you going to reign over us? Are you going to rule over us? They hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Pause there for a moment. You know, I don't think that Joseph shared the dream just to sort of put him down. Now, the Scripture doesn't tell us in a very specific way. I don't think he was, hey, man, here's the dream I had, you know. One of these days I'm really going to run over you and rule over you. I don't think that was his motive. I think he was the younger of the brothers, and hey, this is what's happened, and listen to what I dreamed about. I think he was trying to share in a family dimension. But you know what I find often in family dimensions? We get very jealous when there's some kind of blessing, some kind of promotion, some kind of excellence, some type of achievement, and it isn't happening in our lives. And part of appreciating God's sovereignty is that God works individually, God works uniquely with purpose in each of our lives. You know what I'd like to say to you? God does not work in any two persons' lives in the same way. And you know, we can nod and say, yeah, that's right, I believe that. But you know what? When all of a sudden you're in a job situation and the person gets promoted ahead of you and you've been putting in more time and you really were next in line, that's a tough time to trust God's sovereignty. And all of a sudden, within the family situation, I mean, you're spending four hours a night on that algebra, and your brother spent 30 minutes, and he gets an A, and you get a C. That's really tough to appreciate the giftedness of that person, realizing God has something special for you, but it may not be in the mathematical engineering area. We become very competitive, much like his brother, to the point all of a sudden we don't want to speak to anybody anymore. You were dating that guy, you broke up, and now he's dating somebody else. It's very hard to appreciate the new relationship when suddenly you're alone. 
But if you believe that even though it may have been an unfair situation, even though it wasn't what you thought would take place, but if you believe that God is with you and God has a plan for you and He'll be moving in someone's life different than He's moving in your life at that moment, that begins to give us confidence. That gives us calm. Though there's still pain from the loss of that relationship. But there's a courage. I think that's what Philippians is saying to us. There's that sense of that unique peace that passes human understanding. And that begins by what comes into our mind when we think about God. Now look on. A second dream, as you may know, beginning in verse 9. Now he had still another dream related to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related this to his father. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Look at verse 11. His brothers were jealous, but his father kept the saying in his mind. Let me ask you about some dreams. What are some of your dreams? About relationships? What are some of the dreams about your vocational potential, whether it's in the home, outside the home? What are some of your dreams for the future? And God had given Joseph these dreams. And though you may not dream it in a sense of the specific of what Joseph went through, I think we all have a, a sense of, of God's direction. Here's some purpose he has and that leading of God's spirit within our lives and that sense of him pushing and prodding and encouraging and equipping us. What are some of your dreams? Now look at what happened to his dreams. Verses 12 through 17 are somewhat of, of a parenthesis where the brothers went and were pasturing their flocks. Look at verse 18. Joseph was sent to, to find out what was going on with his brothers. Now look at Genesis 37, 18. When they saw him from a distance... And before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Now, do you see what's happened from that root of bitterness? Again, may I remind us, Hebrews says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up that suddenly begins to defile the people around you. From the jealousy came the hatred to where they couldn't even speak to him. And now they're ready to kill him. Incredible spot. Look at verse 20. They said to one another, Ah, here comes the dreamer. Now let's throw him. Let, let's kill him. Throw him into the pit. We'll say a wild beast has devoured him. Then let's see what becomes of his dreams. But Reuben, who was the oldest, that all fits in with the history of this and his concern for protecting the family, had rescued him out of their hands and said, Hey, let's don't take his life. You know why now? Because Reuben's the firstborn. He's the one who had to go back and report to dad what had taken place. Suddenly, you know, all of a sudden his life was gone. I mean, Reuben was going to pay a price for that. So verse 22, Reuben said to him, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that's in the wilderness. But don't lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the varied colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now look at the next phrase. The pit was empty without any water in it. If my historical study is correct, this pit is more like a, a cistern and more like a sense to where it was narrow at the top and then became very wide at the bottom. And because of the heat and the climate of that area, the, wa the water and all that would take place and the rain would, be, would pour into that particular cistern and then it would be narrow at the top. So in the heat of the summertime, rather than having a great big pool that would evaporate quickly, that would help keep it. It would also help keep it more pure than all the different things that would come into it. And so Joseph, as he was dumped down in that pit, I take it he went down that narrow little channel and then he's in this huge, big, wide area where there's no way he can get out. It isn't narrow enough and it's so wide at the bottom that he can't get the little column to get up. Now, think with me about your dream, about your future potential. Apply that as you think about Joseph. Here he was having a dream, and now he's in this pit with what? No way out. You imagine what he began to think? Ah, uh, those dreams must have been just <laughs> something I ate the night before. That pizza, you know, got to me. Those anchovies. I'd never eat those anchovies again. 
That dream must have been just something that I fantasized about. It must not have been real. And maybe you're in that place right now. You thought God had called you here to Master's College in a certain major and you really felt that were where you were going and you were even affirmed by some other people. And man, you're having a tough time keeping your head above water in what the major requires. Doing great you got the statistics, right? <laughs> Doing great you got some of your science classes or that or your history, whatever's tough for you. And all of a sudden it seems like what's happening? There's a sense where you, you, you really believe God would want you to be married. And you've been dating this great person and suddenly the breakup came and all of a sudden now you're sort of in that pit experience saying, man, isn't there going to be somebody for me? Some of you who are married, some of you as administrators and thought that you're going to have children and suddenly it's a sense where you're childless for a number of years. Whatever might be the dream, here's Joseph in the pit. And what I want to ask you this morning, in all candor and honesty, are your dreams dependent upon God or are they really things you're going to do by your own initiative? See, if I understand God's word correctly, he wants to blend those thoughts. He wants us to do all that we humanly can possible, but depend upon him for the miraculous, for the design, for the potential. And he wants you to study hard and go, go, and go for it. But he also wants to provide in a special way that direction for you. And suddenly here's Joseph with no way out. The dream seems to be lost. And within that particular experience, I think there's an area that we have to ask ourselves, are our dreams, our goals, our plans really dependent upon God? Well, look at what happened. Go on with me. Look at verse 25. His brothers sat down to eat a meal, and they raised their eyes and looked. And behold, a caravan was coming from Gilead with the camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit to kill our brother and cover up with the blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Won't lay our hands on him. He's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by. I love Francis Schaeffer's works. I love reading his wife's volumes, Edith Schaeffer, in their book on Labrie talking about the way that God began to develop in a very unique way their ministry, Edith Schaefer says regularly within that book, coincidence or God's control? Coincidence or God's control? Do you think those traitors just happened to pass by? Think that situation just in random took place? That's not what I see from God. That's not what God's sovereignty is all about. God had a plan for Joseph's life. And the messed up family he was in was not going to thwart that plan. The brothers designed to even kill him, to put him in the pit, to sell him. God had a plan. And he's got a plan for your life. He's got a purpose for you. Value and design. And friends, these traitors just didn't happen to come by. Well, look on at what happened. The brothers lifted him out of the pit. Verse 28, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they, meaning the caravan, brought Joseph into Egypt. Drop down to verse 36, would you please? Look at verse 36. Meanwhile, here's the traitors, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Jump to chapter 39, would you please? Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now look at verse 2, would you please? This I've got yellow markered underlined in my Bible. And the Lord was with Joseph. Another attribute of God that I love thinking through and applying to my life is God's omnipresence. God declares in Scripture that He is everywhere with all of His being all the time. Now, could I challenge you for a second? For those of you who have been around Christian things for a long time, we get into little habits. And some of those, I think, are erroneous, maybe even heretical. Oftentimes we'll say, Lord, would you be with us in this meeting? Friends, if you believe that God is omnipresent, 
That really is an erroneous thought. You don't want him to be with you. What, what do you want him to do? Well, teach us. Encourage us. Move in a mighty way by your spirit. Lord, be with us on our trip. Sometimes we sing, God, be with us till we meet again. It's even put to music. It's an unbiblical comment. You want safety. You want protection. You want to be kept awake in that long night drive. You want a, a sense of whatever it may be within that trip or that journey or opportunity. But friends, God says, there is nowhere you can go to escape from my presence. From the height of heaven to the depth of Sheol. From the beginning of the dawn to the depth of the sea. He says He's everywhere with all of His being. And I want to encourage you, regardless of how deep your pit experience may be, how much somebody has sold you out in a situation, how empty you may feel at certain times, God is with us. Regardless of disease, death, divorce, job loss, bankruptcy, Ever may happen. God is with us. See, here's Joseph, separated from his family, sold into slavery. And if you read on this particular portion, he's lied about by Potiphar's wife. He ends up in jail for something he never did. I don't know how you'd handle that. I don't know how I'd handle that. Suppose you're out shopping in a little Newhall area and somebody kidnapped you and drove you across the Mexican border and sold you as a slave to somebody in Mexico City and they lied about you and you ended up in a Mexican jail for two, maybe three years. That's what happened to Joseph. What would you think about God's presence in your life? See, that's why Hendrickson says every problem we have relates to our concept of God. And that's why Tozer says, as you would define an attribute of God, an attribute is what God has declared to be true about Himself. And my challenge to you in the semester ahead, in these years of unique time of intensive study at Master's College, is to keep pouring yourself into saying, what has God revealed to be true about Himself? Because what we believe about God affects every dimension of our lives. Most critical issue. Look back at... Genesis 39, 2. And the Lord was with Joseph. Look at the next phrase. Wow. And he became a successful man. You were kidnapped by a group or sold as Joseph was as a slave. And suddenly you're in some other country, owned by somebody, controlled by somebody. Would you consider yourself to be successful? This wasn't quite Joseph's dream. <laughs> there weren't many bowing down to him at this time. But see, it was part of God's plan. It was part of God's design. We don't have time to go to it this morning, but there's a passage in the Psalms where it begins to reiterate God's power of working through different key people as we know from the Old Testament. And when it comes to Joseph, you know what it says? God allowed him to be sold into Egypt. God allowed him to be put into fetters, into jail that he might teach his elders justice and truth. You know what took place? God allowed these very difficult, very intense situations to, to prepare him to become second in command over all of Egypt. And you see, looking back, Joseph could say, wow, those first 30 years, if that's what it took, if my chronology is somewhat correct, and then he lived to be 110, if I read it right. He then served for some 80 years as prime minister of the land. Yes, there were three years in jail. Yes, there were some years that he was a slave. But you know what? Those years, God was with him. God's design was a part of what God allowed to take place. And those years were valuable experiences. I'd like to leave you with two thoughts. The one that I've tried to circle around all morning is this. Men and women, God has an individualized plan for your life. Unlike anybody else. So stop comparing yourself with somebody else. Stop getting jealous when somebody else aces a test and you don't. Somebody else is going with somebody and you're not. Somebody else got that certain gift and you never got that check in your mailbox. 
God's plan for you is not like His plan for someone else. There's a great little phrase by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Listen to what he says. Never try to make anyone like yourself. You know, and God knows, that one of you is enough. There's some humor in that, but I want to see on the other positive side. Anonymous writer has written this. I want to apply it to you as individuals. You are special. In all the world, there's nobody like you. Since the beginning of time, there never has been another person exactly like you. Nobody has your exact eyes, nose, hair, hands, voice. God has made you unique. No one can be found who has your handwriting. Nobody anywhere has your tastes for food or music or art. No one sees things just as you do. In all of time, there's been no one who laughs like you. No one who cries like you. And what makes you laugh and cry will never provoke identical laughter or exact tears from anyone else ever. No one reacts to situations just as you would react. You're special. You're the only one in all of creation who has your set of abilities. Oh, there'll always be somebody who's better at one of the things you're good at. But no one in the universe can reach the quality of your combination of talents, ideas, abilities, and feelings. Like a room full of musical instruments. Some may excel alone, but none can match the symphony sound when they're all played together. You're a symphony. Through all of eternity, no one will ever look, talk, walk, think, or do like you. You're special. You're an individual. You're rare. And in all rarity, there's great value. Because of your great rare value, which God has invested in you, you need not attempt to imitate others. You will accept, yes, celebrate your differences. You're special. Begin to see that God has made you special for a very special reason. Direct application in a lifestyle dynamic of God's sovereignty is that God has an individualized plan for you. And if you begin to believe that, and you begin to allow that to filter through your lifestyle and your values, the competitiveness that causes jealousy, the inaccurate dog-eat-dog -dog in such a selfish world in which we live, it begins to get a confidence that God is at work even when you're sold out, even when you're lied about, even when there's injustice, even when the home's in a mess, God still has a plan. Don't limit Him to those circumstances for your potential. But secondly, and most importantly as we leave today, please be aware of God's sovereignty, that God is personally aware and present in every circumstance of your life. He's aware of what's going on. And He's present. I hate that little bumper sticker. And I know the meaning is good, but I hate it. If you feel far from God, guess who moved? You know what that implies? Somehow you moved, I moved. There's times I might feel far from God. He isn't far from me. I've got to filter that back to what God says to be true about Himself. But I may feel that way and I didn't really do anything. But that bumper sticker kind of assigns guilt. If you feel that way, you're at fault. And I want us to realize that we're never far from God. You never move away. There may be a sense where sins come into your life and where the Holy Spirit is hindered from the full ministry He wants through you. We need to confess that sin. But God says, I'm there. I'm present. I know. I care. I have a plan. I've got a design. And you know what? You're valuable. And because you're so valuable, I sent my son to give you eternal life. Would you bow with me, please? Maybe you're here this morning and even coming back just last week for the semester has been tough after you've left your family. Maybe you had some words at home or brought back old struggles or it's a blended family or there's divorce or bitterness. Right now, would you ask God to help you to truly believe 
that He has a plan for you regardless of those difficult situations. Maybe you have a handicap. Maybe a speech problem. Maybe you really struggle in academics. Whatever may be some of your uniquenesses, would you ask God to help you by His strength to reach your potential regardless of your limitations? Ask Him to help you. Maybe you've been jealous of some around you. Maybe even a little revengeful because they're getting better grades or they're doing it easier or they've got the money and you don't or their parents visit and yours don't or they get the cookies from home and none from your home. And there's a sense of jealousy that's become bitterness and you're not even speaking to them much or you'd ignore them or walk away if you could. Would you confess that? Ask God that no root of bitterness would spring up. And right now, would you thank God that He's aware and present in each phase, each segment of your life? Lord, I ask that by the power of Your Spirit today, that we would be changed people. It's so easy to talk about your sovereignty, to repeat back a memorized phrase, to even tack it to a verse. But Lord, I ask that we would apply it to our family situations and our life circumstances. Use what is true, the life of Joseph. Use what we see in Scripture as historical, inerrant, accurate information to remind us that you are present and you work beyond, in spite of, but you use those difficult situations as you work all things together for good to those who are called and love you according to your purpose. So, Father, reward this student body. Affirm this faculty. Encourage this administration as we invest in each life because it's going to make a difference for the future. Father, we want to be used by you. But more importantly, we want to have right thoughts, a proper confidence about what you said to be true about yourself. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Thanks for your great attention. Hope that